Dear listener and fellow story lover, Over the years, I've heard the more nomadic amongst us declare that home is wherever you hang your hat. Others have their home on wheels, taking it with them wherever they go. However, for many others, home is a single permanent structure in which is spent a considerable number of years. All homes can hold our memories and become a tangible part of our life's journey. Which home resonates with you? I hope you enjoy this week's Stories from Before. Alberta's House. How it came to be built. Written by Cornelia A.P. Comer. Read by Selina Cadell, by permission of the Lutterworth Press. Music by Stacey Weir. What I am now going to tell you is, I am afraid, something mere man will not care for or believe in. For how should a man know that what Alberta felt and suffered is felt and suffered by all, save by the most fortunate of her sisters? The feeling is absurd and overstrained, perhaps, but Alberta knew by the tug at her heartstrings that what she felt was as old as woman and as earth. Eve, the first housekeeper to be thrust out of her abode, felt just so when she left the garden eastward in Eden. Eve knew, as Alberta did, that nobody ever had so dear a place to live in and to leave as she for it is the way of women to feel thus about their abodes when they are driven out of them. Alberta was not expecting to move. She had never thought of moving, save of a remote horror that might befall her some day, as one thinks of a broken leg or bankruptcy. She had lived in the house where she was born until she came to be mistress of this one. The blow fell one Saturday afternoon, John and Alberta were out for their Saturday stroll, and Molly Evers, who was visiting them, stayed behind to write some letters. When John and Alberta walk on Saturday afternoons, they are fond of going past unfinished houses, of which there are always dozens in process of construction in the rapidly growing suburb where they live. They like to inspect these, inside and out, commenting on the queer ideas other people have about homes, They see so many places they do not like and would not live in that they invariably come home with a feeling of innocent superiority, thinking their rented domicile pleasanter, after all, than those most other people occupy. And really, it is. It was built, this house of their affection, by a family who, knowing themselves birds of passage, yet hungered for an abiding place of their very own and made it, though aware that three or four years would be the limit of their tenancy. This gave the house a soul to start with. It is a simple, comely, well-proportioned edifice. The rooms are few, but of generous size. They were feeling unusually superior on this particular Saturday. They'd been looking at a house with a charming view and a picturesque exterior that was, nevertheless, badly cut up on the inside into small, dark rooms. The best outlook was reserved for the kitchen. The bathroom was as inconveniently placed as it could possibly be. 
The only good view obtainable upstairs was from the window of a dressing room eight feet square, and there was a ridiculous little study in the centre of the house downstairs that had no outside windows, being lit through an adjoining room by means of a glass wall. There was also a small square opening in the skirting board of the room, whose use was an insoluble puzzle. It must be to let the cat out, said Alberta. Like Sir Isaac Newton, you know. Or was it Benjamin Franklin? Anyhow, when the door is so near, why should the cat want a hole to go out of? No sensible cat would be willing to stay a minute in the room with the man who built this place, returned John. Well, I wonder the man had sense enough to realise it. They were still making merry over this when Molly Evers met them at the door on their return. Well, Alberta, I'm afraid I have some bad news for you, she said with the little air of importance people so often assume when they're about to deal you a blow. The Sandersteads are in town. They just came back from India. And Mrs. Sandersted called while you were out. She says they're going to sell the house. The Sandersteads were the absentee owners of Alberta's dwelling. The latter dropped limply on the hall seat. Sell the house? She repeated flatly. To whom? And when? Shall we have to move? I suppose so. She didn't say when. She just said they were going to sell it, said Molly, vague but positive, as was her wont. I showed her over the house. I thought you'd want me to. She said you kept the rooms neater than she did. But I don't think she likes your taste in wallpapers. They can't make us move without a month's notice. It's in the lease, moaned Alberta. But of course we did take it subject to sale. So I suppose if they have found a buyer... She gazed distractedly around the hall, as if stirred to pick up her possessions by the armful on the moment. Oh, don't worry, said John comfortably. Maybe Molly misunderstood. Anyhow, there are plenty of other houses. We came here first, his wife returned, and I like it. For the rest of the evening, Alberta was very quiet. She seemed to be thinking profoundly, and she started when spoken to, but she said little. Once she went to her desk, got out a red notebook and sat contemplating it with unhappy eyes. It was the book where she kept her choicest morsels of domestic knowledge, the things learned by hard experience, her mother's recipes, the lore imparted by her most housewifely friends. One of the latter, a woman who had once moved three times in a single year, had given her some directions for such crises and she looked them over to refresh her courage. The kitchen utensils may be packed in the zinc bath, she read. The pillows and cushions can be tied in the dusting sheets. The little pictures should be packed in drawers, and every article of furniture ticketed with the room it is to go into in the new house. It all sounded quite possible and reassuring, but the thing Alberta felt herself resenting, though vaguely as yet, was not the packing, the labour, the weariness nor even the idea of resettling in another spot. It was something deeper, more vital than these superficial troubles. But what it was, she hardly knew herself. At bedtime, 
she wept a tear or two on the shoulder of John's grey woolly dressing gown, but appeared to accept his assurance that there was nothing to cry about, and went peacefully to sleep. At two o'clock she awoke with a start. Her mind was curiously full of the impending change, and her thoughts had all the clearness and intensity that so often come in the night watches. She knew now why the thought of moving was so bitter to her, and she was swept by wild rebellion at the knowledge. What she resented was the loss of life this change of domicile involved. Slowly, blunderingly, in sickness and in health, but mostly in sickness, she had lived her way into that house. It had ceased to be bricks and mortar and cream-coloured paint and had become a thing that stirred and breathed around her, a part of herself in a thousand ways. And she had become a part of it. The things she had thought and felt and planned and worked for were visible, even in the way the sunshine lighted up the breakfast table and the firelight danced in the living room. They were in the very atmosphere one breathed as one opened the hall door. Alberta lay wide-eyed thinking about that very bedroom. There had been five long illnesses in the family in the four years they had lived in the house. Twice Alberta herself had fought with death in that room and had crept back to conscious life again, dimly glad to see the firelight leaping on the hearth and the dancing flames reflected in the shiny footboard of the big mahogany bed. Once, in that very bed, they laid on her arm for her to see, the little baby who looked too beautiful to live. In all her beauty-hungry life, she never had beheld anything so exquisite as that small white face. God knew if she would ever see again such beauty. When John was recovering from pneumonia that time, and she herself was convalescent, they had wheeled his lounge in beside her bed, under the shaded light, and she had read aloud to him till her throat rebelled, to make them both forget their heartache, while the fire played on the hearth, and the nurse nodded behind the chintz screen. Yes, The big green room knew the deeps of her life. How could it ever be another woman's room? This is my house, said Alberta passionately. My life is rooted here. How can I be turned out of it? How can I give it up? From recalling the great things of her experience, she passed presently to lesser ones. She brooded over the little things about the house, in which she had, nevertheless, invested much of her life and mind, as a housekeeper always does. She smiled ruefully to herself as she realised that, while the outlook from her drawing room was very pretty, she was still so pitifully feminine that it would hurt her more to leave the built-in sideboard in the dining room than it would the roses in the garden and the bank of rhododendrons. There were dozens in the district with pretty gardens. She might find another easily. But that copper-trimmed corner sideboard high-backed, pentagonal, quaint, stained green to match the woodwork of the room, was a very special piece of furniture and a marvellous background for the odd bits of metal she had accumulated. From the top of it, 
the big Russian basin of brass beamed down like a sun upon the brass lantern below. It was flanked by old brass candlesticks, and there were shelves for all the numerous glittering trays of different shapes and sizes that a housekeeper needs, while the only graceful spirit lamp she ever met was balanced by the egg boiler she hunted London over for. Brass and silver do not mix, so all the silver stood by itself on a high side table. She loved her Queen Anne tea service to distraction, and her ancestral candlesticks were as the apple of her eye. But they would be the same elsewhere, and it might be years before the brasses and coppers found another home so becoming. But as she thought about this, she suddenly became aware that, after all, her most poignant regret about that sideboard was the knife boxes. It would be ridiculous if it were not pitiful, the things about a house to which we women weakly cling. Actually, Alberta's sensibilities were acutely pierced by the thought that those knife boxes would not fit the drawer of another sideboard. The silver drawer was not lined with red flannel and divided into compartments, as Alberta had been brought up to believe self-respecting silver drawers should be. And there had resulted an exciting search in town for wooden boxes that should exactly fit the drawer. At last some were discovered in an out-of-the-way shop, tantalisingly less than a quarter of an inch too long, but the bottom of the boxes projected slightly all round, and an obliging carpenter at work next door shaved off just the amount necessary to make them exactly fit. Then Alberta lined them carefully with red flannel, painstakingly cut out with a knife and glued on. By some happy chance, which does not always prevail in the execution of these little domestic efforts, they turned out an absolutely ship-shaped piece of work, the lining entirely smooth and the boxes just filling the allotted space. Alberta knew the joy of achievement, as much showier accomplishments had never made it known to her. Then there was the little matter of the linen cupboard and the lavender bags. Everybody knows that it is delicious and grandmotherly to have bed linen giving forth a faint fragrance of lavender as you creep between the sheets. That is the way the books always phrase it. But many people do not know by experience how really delightful and refreshing that faint fragrance is. It is even more refreshing in illness than in health, and its comfortable qualities had been fully tested in Alberta's household. Lavendery linen, however, is a growth and an achievement. The drawer does not by any means take on nor impart the right flavour in its first or even its second season. The fragrance accumulates and strengthens as fresh sachets are added each July to those that were made the previous summer. And the lavender should be no druggist stuff, but cut from your own bushes in the height of bloom if you wish to get its full spiciness. Further, there should be at least one sachet folded inside each sheet and another between the pairs, and the sachet should be of the thinnest cheesecloth that may retain as little as possible of the wholesome odour in themselves. This is the law of the linen drawer. A drawer so treated becomes in time veritably a housewife's joy, 
and Alberta's was already fully started on its way towards fragrant age. These are only two out of fifty similar matters that Alberta remembered as she lay there, and she was filled with bitterness and resentment at the thought. Why not? It is being worked over and thought about and loved that imparts the quality of a home to any house, and it takes time and patience to distill that quality out of a material environment. A woman's work gives atmosphere to the walls and windows, and then she and hers receive again from them the beauty and restfulness that they have taken over from her and the things she loves. This is actual creative work. It cannot be done in haste, and it is one of woman's special creative activities. As this thought occurred to her, Alberta turned on the electric light at the head of the bed and reached out her hand and took a scarlet semi-scientific book from her bedside table. John was a sound sleeper. It took a great deal to wake him. What had she been reading in it the other day that bore on this very point? That, as compared to each other, women are more anabolic or plant-like, and men are more catabolic or animal-like, in that the former conserve energy and the latter expend it. She turned over the pages until she found the phrase she wanted. The plant, by a very slow process, converts lifeless into living matter. That is an excellent way, mused Alberta, to describe the activities of a housekeeper who loves her house. If they are anabolic, impressive word, then they are. No scientist could make me surer than I am that the woman who has never fitted a house to the needs of her family and herself has been deprived of one of her important natural functions in whose exercise is happiness. I'm glad the scientists are on the way to realise that this business of living one's way into material substances, like a house and its contents, and turning them into atmosphere and comfort, is of the very essence of the feminine nature. I am sure it is the second great reason why women were made anabolic or conservers of energy. But scientific recognition is cold comfort, and Alberta choked a little just then. It hurt her so to realise that all that she had thought and felt about her house was going to be lost, that her blossoming life was going to be pulled up by its roots and cast forth on the dust heap of a moving van. At the sound of her sob, John awoke. Dearest, what's the matter? Oh, John, how can I move? He got up and went over to the hearth and put a match to the little fire that was all ready to light. Whatever ailed Alberta, firelight was a tonic to her. When the room was radiant with the cheerful blaze, he sat down on the edge of the bed. Now tell me all about it. She did. Once in a long while, when deeply stirred, Alberta had the gift of words. She told him explicitly, intensely. When she had finished, she was white and tired, and he knew more than most men ever dream about the way a woman loves and cherishes the house that becomes her home. Yes, I see, he said. 
Human domiciles will never be what they ought to be and can be until women can build their houses as they live along, exude them, as it were. A woman's house should be as personal a matter as a spider's web or a snail's shell, and all the thought and love and toil she puts into it should be preserved, a part of its comeliness and home-likeness forever, and her monument to the generations. Alberta sighed restfully. It was something to have a John who could say that and understand it. Yes, she said, but that won't happen until there is no more moving upon earth. And even then, said John, there is the final move we cannot hope to evade. After all, there is no permanent tenement but that far one of our hope the house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Silence fell between them. That argument Alberta could not answer. Dearest, said John presently in persuasive tones, I'm very sorry we must move, but we have the things, the things you love, and we have each other. That isn't quite homelessness. No, it isn't, acknowledged Alberta. But even this reflection, while it soothed her to sleep at last, did not wholly ease her burden. That, however, was destined to be removed at dinner time, when John came in exultant. I went to see the agent, he said, to find out what the Sandersteads really wanted. And it is all just one of Molly's muddles. They expect to sell, if they can. And Jones and Co. say the price they ask is 200 more than anyone will ever pay. And that if they wait to get it, we shall all be grey-headed. So I'm making an offer for the house, which he says they are certain to accept. You'll have a house of your very own, by the time you have to move, Alberta. The end. I do hope you were entertained by this story. I'm sure that many can relate to how a house becomes a part of who they are, a sacred place within and without. Please subscribe and follow this podcast and share it with your family and friends. I hope you enjoy a lovely week and I look forward to being with you next week when I again share stories from before.